millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Last episode, we covered the formation of the Royal Australian Navy and their involvement in the opening months of the war. We looked at operations around the Bismarck Sea to capture German wireless stations, where Australia's first World War I casualties were suffered, including the loss of the AE-1, which made up half of the Australian submarine fleet. We then joined the convoy taking the first contingent of Australian troops to war and the battle between HMAS Sydney and the German raider Emden. Fresh from his victory, Sydney rejoined the convoy as they sailed into Colombo. Now, with the AOF safely delivered across the Indian Ocean, the RAN was free to undertake other duties. Some stayed to support the AIF during the Gallipoli campaign, while others went to join the wider war. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back to Episode 2 of the Royal Australian Navy in World War I. Just a quick shout out to Mr Nigel Earn, who left a nice comment and a review on iTunes. I never expected people would use these episodes as a primer for buying books or as a summary before battlefield tours. But I have to admit, I'm kind of a little bit chuffed to hear that that's what you're doing and that the podcast assists you in doing this. Thanks heaps for your review, Nige. So, from Colombo, the role of the HMAS Sydney and Melbourne came to an end and they were each ordered onto other duties. Sydney headed off to Malta where she took part in about 18 months of uneventful patrolling. Melbourne similarly headed off for uneventful patrolling, but she plied the coast of North America from New York to Brazil and back up again. Eventually, though, both ships were ordered back to the European waters by the end of 1916, and we'll pick them up again when we get to that bit. You may also recall from the last episode that HMAS Australia was hunting for Admiral Von Spee around the Falkland Islands. When Von Spee was finally sorted out in December 1914, Australia was ordered to Devonport as well and we'll catch up with her again later as well. So basically while the AIF was training in Egypt, the ships of the RAN were out and about in other parts of the world patrolling and escorting, which meant that when Australian soldiers first went into battle on the 25th of April 1915 at Gallipoli, a seaborne landing, the RAN played very little part and so the Navy doesn't really get mentioned when the Anzac spirit is spoken of, at least as it relates to the Gallipoli campaign. But... The RAN was represented both on the first day of the campaign and also a bit later on. But we'll cover the day of the landing first. With the threat to shipping around the Australian coast more or less neutralised, it was agreed by the British Admiralty and the RAN that submarine AE-2 would be of more use in the European theatre. So when the second AIF convoy left Albany on 31st of December 1914, the AE-2 was taken under tow and so it was in the right general area when the Dardanelles campaign was proposed. Now, I'm no expert on such things, but I'd assume when a vessel is taken under tow, most of the crew will still be required to remain on board to keep things shipshape, so to speak, or maybe to be ready to go solo should weather conditions or enemy activity require the cutting of the tow line. I can only imagine how cramped and uncomfortable such a journey would have been in those early submarines. Those early submariners were certainly cut from a different cloth to the rest of us, 
She arrived in Egypt on the 20th of January 1915 and began patrolling around the Mediterranean in preparation for the upcoming Dardanelles campaign as part of the British 2nd Submarine Flotilla. The campaign was initially intended as a solely maritime operation. The powers at B, led by Winston Churchill, were of the opinion that they could just sail a few old battleships up the Dardanelles Strait, wave the Union Jack off the coast of Constantinople, and Turkey would somehow surrender with nary a shot fired. But in what became a feature of the whole Gallipoli fiasco, they totally underestimated the Turkish will and ability to defend their country. Basically, by the end of the 18th of March, the Allied attempt to force the Straits was turned around with heavy losses. Fortunately for the crew of the AE-2, they weren't involved on that day. On 10th of March, they were returning to Malta after a patrol. Normally, the harbour lights were turned on to aid navigation, but on the 10th, they were turned off. Nobody thought to tell the AE-2's commander, Lieutenant Henry Stoker, that the lights would be off, and so he promptly ran aground. He apparently lacked the ability to see in pitch blackness and find his way with absolutely no navigational aids whatsoever, as he was apparently expected to by high command. Oh well. So, as a result, the submarine was towed to Malta for repairs and so wasn't available for the 18th of March disaster. She was, however, back in the game to play her role when troops were landed to try and take out the Turkish gun positions which had hampered the fleet's mine-clearing efforts on the 18th. While the surface vessels were transporting troops, AE-2 embarked upon her own date with destiny. Strangely enough, though, it wasn't until the end of the war that Australia got to learn of what AE-2 got up to on that day. It was widely reported that at the time that she was the only vessel to make it through the Dardanelles, but the details had to wait until Commander Stoker was released from captivity at the end of the war. I'll quote the first few paragraphs of his account of the first part of his adventure, and then I'll raise a couple of points. So, quote, Having proceeded off the anchorage of Tenedos, I lay at entrance to the Dardanelles until the moon set, at about 2.30am on April 25, entered the Straits at about 8 knots. Searchlights from Whitecliffs, Kefhez Point and Shanak were sweeping the Straits. Weather calm and clear. As the order to run amuck in the Narrows precluded all possibility of making the passage unseen, I decided to hold on to the surface as far as possible. As I proceeded, the searchlights at Whitecliffs, sweeping the lower reaches of the Strait, forced me to edge towards the northern shore. At about 4.30am, being then not quite abreast of Swandre River, a gun opened fire at one and a half miles range from the northern shore. I immediately dived and at a depth of 70 to 80 feet proceeded through the minefield. During the ensuing half hour or so, the scraping of wires against the vessel's side was almost continuous and on two occasions something caught up forward and continued to work for some considerable time before breaking loose and scraping away aft. Having risen twice for observation in the minefield, which I considered necessary as E-15 had run ashore in this vicinity, on arising the third time I found the vessel in good position, rather over to the northern side of the straits and approaching the narrows, some two miles distant. End quote. So from this passage you get a good idea of just how primitive these early subs were. The only way Stoker could be 100% sure of his location was to pop up onto the surface and have a look. This obviously had a couple of downsides. One, if you pop up in the wrong spot, an eagle-eyed Turkish gunner might have the chance to lob a shell right onto you. But honestly, that's the least of your problems. Remember he said he had to service in the middle of a minefield, and he was sailing under the mines. Choose the wrong time to come up, and he could quite possibly hit one of those mines, sending them all to the bottom to die horribly. On the other hand, not knowing his exact location could result in running aground, getting stuck, or damaging the sub 
and keeping them all on the bottom to die horribly. It's a tough choice. And there was the almost continuous scraping of wires along the vessel's side. Keep in mind, those wires were attached to mines. If one of those wires snagged on something, it could quite possibly drag a mine down onto the sub. And, as Stoker noted, on two occasions, something did snag. But what can you do? Can't just jump out the side and untangle it, can you? You just have to push forward, hope for the best, and remember, you have clean underwear available in your trunk for when this is all over. Now, obviously, they did make it through the minefield and into the narrows. Now was the time to carry out the aforementioned orders to run amok. At a depth of about 20 feet, Stoker looked through his periscope for a target. Sounds pretty easy. But by this stage, the sun was up and a moving vertical stick poking out of the sea didn't go unnoticed by the Turkish gunners, who commenced a pretty accurate fire. As Stoker said, this made observation through the periscope rather difficult, but he did find a target. He saw an old hulk he believed may have been dropping mines into the narrows, and so he decided to attack it. But as he was lining up, he saw a small destroyer come out from behind the hulk. Judging that to be more likely to be dropping the mines, Stoker lined it up instead. At about 300 to 400 yards, he fired a torpedo and then promptly ordered his crew to dive to 70 feet to avoid another destroyer, which was trying to ram them from the port side. That's the left for you land lubbers out there. As this destroyer passed close overhead, the crew could hear the explosions as the torpedo hit its target to their front. That ship, it was in all likelihood beginning to sink, and it was still directly in Stoker's direction of travel. He ordered a hard starboard, right, turn, to avoid this. It was about here that Stoker had his first real oops moment. He was trying to get back on course and back up to 20 feet so he used his periscope again and he found a spot where the bottom was rising. He slid up the bank a little way and ended up with a significant portion of his conning tower sticking above the water, right under a Turkish fort. The guns at the fort were so close that when they fired, the flash from the muzzle almost reached AE2's periscope. They quickly managed to refloat slammed it into reverse, dropped the clutch and burnt rubber, getting out of there. Shortly after, he ran aground again, on the Gallipoli shore. They were stuck there for about five minutes. Stoker noticed the vessel was inclined towards the front, and so he ordered full speed ahead. They slowly started to move down the bank, and eventually had enough water under them to continue. But on the way down, they bumped heavily onto the bottom. Stoker was pretty sure that bump did some considerable damage, affecting her fighting ability but he considered that his main mission was to show that a passage could be forced through the straits, and so he decided to push on regardless. By this stage, their presence was well and truly known, and a number of enemy vessels were carrying out search operations. Stoker made the decision to dive to 90 feet and set course for the Sea of Memora. Having calculated that he had arrived, he again ascended to have a look through the periscope and confirmed that he had made it to his objective and could see the pursuing vessels looking for him to the south. But again, his periscope was spotted, and the shore batteries opened up again, and so he dived to get to 90 feet and sat there for half an hour while the search went on above him. When he once again came up to 20 feet, he noticed two tugs heading his way, one on either side, with a wire hanging between them. He assumed that under that wire was some kind of net, in which they were hoping to snare him. So, back down to 90 feet. Now Stoker began to have another issue. While underwater, the AE-2 ran on battery power. The battery could only be charged while running under diesel power on the surface. All this time underwater was seriously draining the battery. But with the pursuit going on overhead, he couldn't surface. So his only real option was to run her aground underwater and sit tight while only running the absolute necessary equipment. They stayed like this for a couple of hours while Turkish ships scurried around overhead. But the Turks weren't stupid. They weren't just sailing around willy-nilly, hoping that by some stroke of luck they'd make contact. 
They were in fact carrying out a systematic grid-by-grid search pattern and using various methods to try and hit AE2, such as the netting mentioned previously, and by dragging heavy objects across the sea floor to see if they could hit them. And hit them they did. The crew heard a number of heavy impacts as they lay there, and by 11am Stoker figured it was time to move to a better position. But the last bump had caused a leak in the hull, and a fair amount of water collected in the bilges, throwing the trim characteristics out of whack. They had little choice but to sit there until dark, where they could rise to the surface, drain the water, and charge their batteries. It was while on the surface that Stoker was able to radio back their location to the main force. It was about that time that the commanders at Anzac were considering the possibility of evacuation. News that AE2 had made it through the Straits was one of the things which General Sir Ian Hamilton had used as his justification to issue the directive that the men at Anzac merely had to dig, dig, dig until you were safe. The night of the 25th passed quietly on board AE2. She had taken some damage during the day, but was still operational and still a massive threat to Turkish shipping in the area. Around dawn on the 26th, while still on the surface, Stoker noticed a number of ships ahead and dived to attack. This attack didn't go so well. The first ship successfully dodged the torpedo, and the second ship was too close to allow time to reload another torpedo, so Stoker held his fire. Stoker admitted the attack failed due to, quote, his personal error in overdoing an unseen attack, end quote. It was then that he decided it was time to head out into the Sea of Marmora to do some damage. But the 26th was a bit of a fizzer, really. On sailing into the Sea of Marmora, he noticed a number of vessels, but they were flying no flags, so Stoker couldn't tell if they were military vessels or just ordinary merchant ships going about their business. He only had eight torpedoes when he entered the Straits the previous day and had already fired off two. He needed to make sure that those he had left would actually assist the troops on the ground. He decided to investigate the ships a little closer and found no signs of troops on the nearest one, but then, as he sailed past, rifle fire came from the deck, aiming for the periscope and the flags were run up. He dived again and fired a torpedo at the second ship, but missed. Unable to catch the other ships, he disengaged and spent the rest of the day on the surface charging his batteries and, as he put it, investigating fishing boats. The 27th was almost a mirror image of the 26th. They sighted a ship being escorted by two destroyers. This was obviously a military target, so they had a crack. They fired a torpedo at the second of the destroyers, but the torpedo's engine failed to fire and so basically just floated to the bottom of the sea. The destroyer was attempting to ram AE2, so there was no chance of getting off a second shot. Stoker dived down and spent the rest of the day sitting on the bottom, allowing his crew a chance to rest. On the 28th, they again had a shot at a destroyer and missed. They then lay low until the evening, when they moved to the Gallipoli shore in hope of getting a wireless message to the Allied Navy. It appears they were successful as a rendezvous was organised for the following day with E-14. Prior to that vessel's arrival, Stoker made himself visible to the enemy shipping and lured them out into the Sea of Marmora, where he dived and attacked one of the gunboats, but again, the torpedo narrowly missed its target. He then went to the rendezvous. The commander of E-14 ordered Stoker to another rendezvous point for 10am the following morning. On 30th of April, after making repairs to an exhaust tank valve, they proceeded to the allotted point. Upon arrival, Stoker saw a torpedo boat heading his way and dived to avoid it. He noticed some smoke off in the distance and went to investigate, but while heading that way, AE-2's nose rose suddenly and she broke the surface about a mile from a torpedo boat. Stoker ordered the front tanks to be flooded, but she refused to dive. Until, all of a sudden, she did. The depth gauge only went to 100 feet, but the vessel kept diving long past where the gauge stopped. Frantic efforts were made to regain control, but as the dive stopped, they speared backward 
towards the surface, stern first, at a great rate of knots until she broke through again. Sitting on the surface, she was hit three times by fire from the torpedo boat. Realising that AE-2's adventure was all over, Stoker ordered all hands on deck, opened the tanks to flood the vessels, and AE-2 sank to the bottom. The crew were picked up by Turkish ships without loss of life, and that was that. They spent the next four years in Turkish prisons. Now it may sound as though the AE-2's mission over those few days was pretty unsuccessful. It appears they only hit one ship, and if that was your measure of success, then you'd be fair in saying it was a total failure. But it wasn't. Over those five days, AE-2 caused a lot of concern for the Turkish authorities. They couldn't risk sending troops from the Asiatic side of the Dardanelles to Gallipoli with a rogue submarine lurking. Many of the reinforcements to oppose the landing would need to take the longer land-based route. It's quite possible that the delay gave the Anzac troops a small window of opportunity to establish some kind of rudimentary defensive positions. And you can't really underestimate the morale-boosting value of knowing an Australian vessel was on the other side of the peninsula, causing the Turks some headaches. They may not have inflicted much damage, but the efforts of Stoker and his crew certainly needs to be recognised as one of the few successful operations of the Gallipoli campaign. And so that brings us to the other naval unit to be involved during the Gallipoli operation. How many of you have heard of the first Royal Australian Naval Bridging Team? Don't be embarrassed if you haven't. Until I started researching this episode, I'd never heard of them either. So, I'll give you a wee bit of background. After the earlier operations around Rabaul that I covered in the last episode, the role of the naval reserves appeared to be over. The war in Europe had devolved into trench warfare, and so there wasn't much for a naval reserve unit in Australia to do. And so, on 8th of February 1915, the Navy Board sent a memo to the Minister of Defence proposing that the officers and men of the reserve be offered to the home government, meaning England, as a bridging team. Now in this context, a bridging team basically means a pioneer unit. This unit, although maintaining naval ranks and ratings, would be paid, organised, equipped and trained under military supervision. So the upshot was, they'd still be in the Navy, but would carry out their duties as required on land. They wore the same uniforms as the soldiers, with putties, khaki tunics and slouch hats. The only real distinguishing trait was that instead of a rising sun badge on their hats, they had an anchor. When considering who would lead this unit, the Naval Board went to two officers who would distinguish themselves during the Rabaul operations. Overall command was given to Lieutenant Bracegirdle with the 2OC, Lieutenant Bond. Now, it was all well and good to create this new unit and to say it would be able to build bridges, pontoons, etc. But another thing to actually make it happen. By 12th of March 1915, the 115 men who would make up the first draft of the bridging team were encamped at the Domain in Melbourne, none of them with any experience whatsoever in building pontoons or bridges. Nor did they have anything to train with until the middle of May. And, being naval men, they had no real experience in using horses for carrying the pontoon materials when they did arrive. It was only about two weeks after any sort of training equipment had arrived at the Domain that, on the 3rd of June, seven officers, 278 petty officers and men, and 412 horses boarded the transport ship Port Macquarie and headed off to England. But, as they were on the water, the plans for the August offensive at Gallipoli were beginning to take shape. Part of that attack was to be a new landing to the north of Anzac Cove at a place called Suvla Bay. I won't go into detail about the Suvla landing as this episode is about the Navy, but by way of a very basic background, here goes. As the Australians attacked at Lone Pine and Chinook Bear, the plan was for the British to land at Suvla, push forward into the hills, and then to the south to link up with the Australians. In short, it was a debacle. The man in charge was General Freddie Stopford. 
who was basically dragged out of a pleasant retirement and given command due to his seniority, never having commanded men in battle before. The best description I've ever heard in relation to General Stofford was in Les Carline's book, Gallipoli. He said when Stofford submitted an article of his life in a magazine, he stated he'd had a good innings. Carline stated he may have had a good innings, but judging by his performance at Suvla, you'd have to wonder if he knew why he'd been sent into bat. So he was basically pretty useless. Anyway, it was the fate of the bridging train to be assigned to assist with the landings at Suvla Bay. With only five days' worth of instruction on building pontoons, the train would be responsible for constructing a pontoon pier after the initial infantry waves had landed to allow subsequent ships to come as close to the shore as possible to unload further troops and equipment. But such was the confusion on that first day that upon the landing, the best the train could do was to secure some barrels and build a rough pier at a landing. But their story really began on the following day. They were finally able to bring their pontoons ashore and construct an operational pier in record time, which allowed the disembarkation to be completed later that night. But while they were building that pier, word came that the transports for the take off the wounded couldn't get close enough to the shore. No worry, said the train. They prepared some pontoons and superstructure on their own vessel, the Itria, and then rode it two miles to A Beach, under fire the whole way, and within 20 minutes of their arrival, a pier 120 yards long was in place and wounded were finally being loaded. One of the major issues at Suvla Bay was the lack of water. There were no water supplies on land, and so it all had to be brought in from the sea. By day two, the troops were so thirsty that they would gather in large groups waiting for the water supply to be carted in old petrol tins. This gave the Turks a beautiful target and many troops were lost. It was decided that the bridging train would be responsible for the whole supply of water from ship to shore, on top of their other duties of constructing and maintaining the piers and the disembarkation of other supplies. They decided to take a number of their pontoons and dig them into the ground at the end of the beach to be used as tanks. They then ran fire hoses from the supply ships to the tanks and using the firefighting pumps they pumped the water ashore but the thirsty troops punched holes in the canvas hoses to help themselves to the water. Sentries were posted, but it wasn't until metal piping were installed that the tanks could really be filled reliably. In his account of the bridging train's duties, Brace Girdle wrote a list of typical duties for the team. Quote, Water supply, care of landing piers, discharging of stores from ships and transports, lighterage of the same to the shore, salving of lighters and steamboats wrecked during gales, assisting in the salving of the TBD Louis, Disembarking of troops with their baggage on all beaches and munitions and stores. Control and issue of all engineer and trench stores and materials. Care and issue of trench bombs and demolition stores. Erection of high explosive magazines, dugouts, cookhouses and galleys. Assembly of hospital huttings. Construction of iron frames for front line wire entanglements. And the manning and controlling of the steam tug Daphne. End quote. All this was carried out under constant threat from Turkish snipers and artillery without the ability to fight back. They were an engineer unit, not a combat unit. On occasion, British infantry would be required to provide assistance to the bridging team. It was reported that the British were relieved to get back to the comparative safety of the frontline trenches. Charles Bean paid a visit to the Suvla area to see how things were progressing. While there, he saw what the bridging train was up to. He wrote in the official history, quote, there they are today, in charge of the landing of a great part of the stores of the British Army. They are quite cut off from their own force. They scarcely come into the category of the Australian force, and scarcely into that of the British. They are scarcely Army and scarcely Navy. Who is it that looks after their special interests, and which is the authority that has the power of recognising the good work they have done? I do not know. 
If you want to see the work, you only have to go to Kangaroo Beach, Suvla Bay, and look about you. They have made a harbour. End quote. But all in all, it was for nothing. The August offensive was a dismal failure, and when winter started to close in later that year, evacuation was ordered. The bridging train got to work constructing more piers for the embarkation of the troops. Extra huts were constructed to house the troops coming back from the front lines before they embarked. All the other duties, such as supply of water and controlling of stores, still had to be undertaken, and from the 12th of December to the 16th of December, they were at it 24 hours a day. Their turn for evacuation came at 2am on the 18th of December. It was only upon arrival at Mudros that Bracegirdle reported sick with jaundice and malaria. After Gallipoli, in a period of recuperation, the bridging train took part in the Sinai-Palestine campaign. As the Allies pushed the Turkish army back along the coast, the bridging train was following along, constructing bridges and piers as required. They were also used for constructing tracks between adjacent bridgeheads each evening by dragging a heavy wooden roller with two horses. First thing the next morning, a bridging train officer would ride along this track to see if there were any tracks made in it overnight. The object being to confirm if any Turks had managed to cross that track, leaving behind footprints of men or horses. Any signs of activity would put the garrison on alert and the appropriate action taken. So that just about covers Gallipoli and the RAN's involvement. For most of the RAN, the war now moved to Europe. But before we get to that, there's one other interesting tale to tell, that of the HMAS Psyche. At the outbreak of war, Psyche was actually part of the New Zealand Navy and took part in the early operations to capture German-held territory in Samoa. It also formed part of the escort, bringing New Zealand troops to Albany before they sailed for Egypt. But she was an old tub by that stage and was decommissioned on the 22nd of January 1915. In May 1915, she was loaned to the RAN as a training vessel and was commissioned into the RAN on 1st of July. Now, by mid-1915, the war was stretching its tentacles further out into the world. While the main action was taking place in Europe, there were doings of transpiring around the subcontinent, particularly India and Burma. The Germans had been active in the area since at least 1911, stirring up discontent among the locals towards British rule. It was believed that through their embassy in Washington, German agents were smuggling arms and propaganda into that area. Now, this was obviously nowhere near as important as blockading the German high seas fleet or escorting troop ships, and so the top-of-the-line modern vessels couldn't really be diverted to this region to patrol for smugglers. But the Psyche could. No longer a training ship, she was sent to the region with HMAS Fantome. She may no longer have been a training ship officially, but most of her crew were still under training, and many of their petty officers had very little real experience. Nevertheless, she left Sydney on the 16th of August and headed to Asia under the command of Commander Henry Feeks. Psyche joined the other ships in the Burma Coast Patrol. A typical patrol lasted 10 to 12 days, after which the ships would return to Rangoon to recoal for 3 or 4 days. While on patrol, all the training requirements were undertaken so the crew were kept busy. The conditions on board were far from perfect, and the extreme heat in the north and severe storms in the south of the patrol area pushed the crew to the limits. Between 14th of October and 2nd of November, an unidentified illness began affecting the ship. Twelve crew members were hospitalised and 14 more remained on board despite coming down with the illness. In January, the Burma Coast Patrol was disbanded as the activity in that area had collapsed and Psyche was ordered to Penang on the Malay Peninsula. Eight crew members were sent back to Australia, being deemed unfit for tropical service. But the illness and deteriorating conditions of the crew was probably due more to the unsuitableness of Psyche for tropical conditions. 
There's very little ventilation below decks and none of the modern conveniences enjoyed by newer ships. The work was hard and unrelenting in the tropical heat. Eventually, the crew members had had enough. On 12th of February, while in port in Kalang, seven stokers refused duty and were court-martialed. The thing which really set the whole thing off, it seemed, was the food. Virtually from the time they sailed from Sydney, the crew were constantly complaining about the poor quality of the food. Complaints ranged from green or rotten meat, rotten eggs and fish from tins, and very little in the way of fresh fruit and veggies. Stoker Albert Hummerston was the first to refuse to mount duty in protest and was subsequently arrested. Six more refused duty in support of Hummerston and were also placed under the charge of a sentry. They were all found guilty of willful disobedience of a lawful command and received sentences varying from 12 months to two years imprisonment and dismissal from the RAN. These men were replaced by a draft of 10 replacements from Australia and put to sea again to continue patrols around the Gulf of Siam. The heavy workload continued in heavy seas and tropical heat for about two months and when the ship docked at Hong Kong on the 2nd of July for inspection and refit, six officers and 70 crew were sent to hospital with various illnesses, while 40 more remained on board for treatment. This meant that around half of the ship's crew were incapacitated due to illness. The ship's surgeon submitted a report stating that the crew was in urgent need of a spell in a cold climate. In August, Psyche put to sea again, patrolling the southern coast of China, based at Hong Kong. The health of the crew improved somewhat, possibly due to the cooler conditions off the Chinese coast. She stayed in that region, patrolling as usual until October, where she was again ordered back to Singapore to begin patrol activities in the Bay of Bengal and off the coast of Sumatra. In March 1917, she detached for escort duties for military transports between Burma and India before finally, on 16th of July 1917, she returned to Singapore where she was to be relieved by HMS Suffolk and then headed home to Sydney, arriving in September. She was decommissioned on the 16th of October. She had spent more than two years on active service without firing a shot in anger. The work was tedious, unrelenting and took a toll on the health of the crew. It was also probably the closest the RAN has come to a mutiny. But in the end, she had performed a thankless task which nonetheless proved important, keeping the Asian region under control and allowing the more modern, better equipped ships to focus on the main goal of containing the German Navy. So, with the almost forgotten story of HMAS Psyche now told, and the Gallipoli venture at an end, we'll move on to the operations around Africa and Europe. But that's material for the next episode. So join me next time, and we'll look at the blockade of the German high seas fleet, the raid at Zeebrugge, and anything else which may pop up as I'm delving into those subjects. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast, or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.